something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Heads up, y'all. Today's episode is about death. So if that's not something you're interested in listening to right now, just come back to this episode later. On Theme is a production of iHeartRadio and Fairweather Friends Media. In 2022, rapper Markel Moreau, also known by his stage name Gunu, was killed in Maryland. He was just 24 years old when he died. And his death was all over the news. Not just because he was a rapper who was murdered, but because of what his family did with his body after he died. Markel Morrow's loved ones posted a viewing over the weekend at a D.C. nightclub. And now videos and pictures, they're surfacing all over social media of Morrow's body being prominently displayed. And in a Fox 5... So much about this whole debacle was shitty. The fact that Gunu was killed, the fact that his family had to grieve his death while subjected to intense public scrutiny, the fact that all the internet instigators were more concerned with his deceased body being staged than his life being so needlessly taken from him. It was yet another instance of the circumstances around a young Black man's death being harshly and endlessly picked apart. Yeah, I remember this. There are people commenting online that presenting Markel's body that way at a club was too much. Now, I know that when you're putting a loved one to rest— There are often people in your ear trying to tell you how to do that best. But to have people who aren't in your family, don't live in your state, were nowhere in, around, or near the deceased person's life, don't know you from jack squat trying to tell you what you should and shouldn't have done, that seems tiring. It's clearly, one, not anyone's business, and two, what the family wanted. This is Markel's mother, Patrice Parker Moreau, speaking to Fox 5, Washington, D.C., it's something I wanted to do. That's how Markel wanted me to do it. That's how he wanted to go out. He wanted to celebrate his life, turning up, having a party. 
He don't want people to be sad and crying. He always wants people to be happy and having fun. I'm sure the family would have much rather not had a memorial service at all and instead saw Markel get older, make more music. I'm sure they didn't want to have to grieve. Right. Who would want to go through this? But as much as Americans like to be uptight about death and mourning, post-mortem photography has a deep history that began long before the first negative Nancy logged onto a social media site. Death portraiture is an art that's been around for a long time, and it's still alive today. I'm Katie. And I'm Eves. Today's episode... The last image. Katie, had you ever seen any funerary portraits before? You know what? Not professional ones. But whenever me and my grandmother were at a funeral, she would try to make me take a picture of the person in the casket. And oh. I would always yell at her and say no. Mm-hmm. Um, she would always take pictures and you would be like at her house looking through photo albums and then boom, somebody in the casket. And I'm like, mm-hmm. girl. But maybe she was on some. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 21st century American culture on the whole is one that seems to not want to touch death with a 10-foot stick. There are exceptions, of course, but here in the U.S., funerals are sad occasions, and mourning is private and appropriate. It's not socially acceptable to wear our grief on our sleeves for too long, and there are respectable and unrespectable ways to mourn our loved ones. But, you know, before all the anti-aging creams and supplements, death was everywhere you turned— high infant mortality rates, war, disease. I mean, I'm not saying we aren't still surrounded by death. It's just easier to live longer today in the U.S. than it was in the mid-1800s. So death wasn't as touchy of a subject, and portraits of the dead were not uncommon. You mean images of people after they had already died? Yeah. When photography was still a young art form, a lot of people never got the chance to have their picture taken when they were alive. So their opportunity to be photographed came in death. This gave the surviving family members and friends a super special memento to hold on to, a cherished reminder of their life. Wow, we can take photos to our heart's content these days, and those are a treasure to have when people pass away. So I can only imagine what it was like to have this new medium that can capture the image of a loved one exactly as they were. Yeah, and back in the 19th century, photos of the dead were put in family albums or displayed in the home. By the 20th century, photography was more accessible, death care was more commercial, and postmortem photos weren't just for anyone's eyes. But people still took photos of and with dead people to honor their memory. It was less likely that these photos would be taken in a home setting, but photographers captured the deceased in their caskets alone or surrounded by loved ones. And one such photographer was James Vanderzee. Oh yeah, I know James. Yeah, you might have seen some of Van Der Zee's photos before. He created some really beautiful studio portraits of Black New Yorkers in the early 1900s. He also captured photographs that documented Black life in Harlem at the time. And that time was the Harlem Renaissance. Yes, ma'am. He started his photography business in the early 1900s in Harlem, but he really began to get attention after he was featured in the 1969 exhibition Harlem On My Mind. He took portraits of noted artists like County Cullen and Ruby Dee, 
He photographed Marcus Garvey and the Universal Negro Improvement Association. Mm, seems like his subjects had a little coin or notoriety. Well, while postmortem portraits were restricted to the upper class back when they had to be painted, the emergence of photography made them a lot more accessible. The development of the technology was a boon to postmortem portraiture. And people with money, not just money money, could now get portraits. Some of those folks were the Black folks that Van Der Zee photographed in New York. A lot of the families that commissioned him would have been considered middle class and weren't famous. And his work wasn't just about Black life. It was also about Black death. Along with artist and archivist Camille Billups and poet Owen Dotson, James Van Der Zee created the Harlem Book of the Dead. In it, his funerary portraits were accompanied by Dotson's poems, written from the dead's perspective, and text from interviews with Billups. A lot of the older postmortem photographs we see are of Europeans and white Americans. But this art form and mourning ritual is also part of a Black tradition. When we get back, how the Harlem Book of the Dead memorialized James Van Der Zee's work as a funerary photographer, with a cosign from Toni Morrison. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
The Harlem Book of the Dead marked the first time the public saw all of James Vanderzee's funerary portraits compiled, but it wasn't published until 1978, decades after he captured the photos, and millennia after its namesake, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, was used. The book is divided into thematic sections. For instance, one about children, one about soldiers, and one about women. The deceased pictured in the photos are children and adults. Sometimes Van der Zee has them hold props, like a teddy bear or newspaper or flowers. Stories of how some of the people pictured died are included in the back of the book. And of course, there are the poems that accompany the black and white photos in the book. Owen Dotson, a Black writer from Brooklyn, used his poetry to highlight the inevitability and grim reality of death, as well as the dignity and significance of the lives that were lost. He says in one poem, Death always happens to somebody else, not the dead. Somebody, friends, somebody, aunts, cousins, nephews, mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, not the dead. As Camille Billups notes in the introduction to the book, Poetry and portraiture were old bedfellows with death. And Van der Zee was well aware of the old tradition that he was a part of. When Billups asked him if he knew about the history of postmortem photography, he talked about people who painted portraits of the dead and about funerary photos he got from the West Indies that he copied and translated to his style. What do you mean by his style? Well, there were other artists, including Black ones, who photographed the dead. But Van der Zee's images were unique. The staging of the bodies and the composition of the photos weren't too different from other funerary photos. The deceased were pictured lying in plush caskets, surrounded by flowers, sometimes staged to look like they were sleeping. But Van Der Zee added a little extra flavor onto his photos by manipulating them to include images of angels, of the deceased while they were living, of scriptures and poems, and other inserts that, according to Van Der Zee, take away the gruesomeness of the picture. Yeah, I noticed that looking at his photos, and I can see his influence on, like, obituaries. Mm -hmm. Maybe not the most modern obituaries now, but I feel like in the early 2000s, even the 90s, there was always, like, an angel and some (laughs) flowers going on. And that's what he was putting in his photos or, you know, the picture of them while they're alive over them, which, you know, looking at it then, like, the technology was a little different, so it looks a little, you know, cut out with scissors and pasted. It does. But you can definitely see his influence in more modern context, and I'm sure, like, all these people probably have no idea who this man is, but it's interesting to see that through line there. Yeah, but one, I will say, girl, obituary art has not changed much since the early 2000s. Really? (laughs) (laughs) It has truly not evolved that much, so it still is kind of in that vein. But, you know, Van Der Zee did have to be skilled to do those photo manipulations. Like, not everybody was doing that, and that is something that set him apart. So not only was the, the execution need to be on point for what it was at the time, which the technology was definitely not as advanced as it is today, but he had to have a little creativity and originality to think to even do these things. But I think part of that came from his artistry and came from his own spirit of, like, how he felt people should be portrayed and the kind of, like, light that should be brought to these photos and the additional context that he wanted to add to it. And I think it also shows the way that he used the inserts. It shows this very Black tradition of funerals and dying, not just being about sadness and mourning, but also being about the faith, you know, where the angels and the scripture came into it, about moving on from struggle, you know, going back home, it being a home going. And that was really imbued in his portraits by these inserts that he used. Another thing I was thinking of, you know, you said that 
you could see the influence of him. I was thinking about those old Olin Mills photos. I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember them, but oh, they, yeah. were, <laughs> they were black in the background. And they had, like, a portrait of the family in the front, may, probably facing one side, like, maybe half profile, quarter turn, or whatever you call that, set up. And then <laughs> a large floating head mm-hmm. in the background. Mm-hmm. And if people haven't seen these photos, um, because the Harlem Book of the Dead is kind of hard to get hold of. Yeah. But so if people haven't seen these photos, you know, kind of imagine that floating head and think about that being angels instead in the background or, like, pictures of soldiers in formation that he took from, like, uh, more documentary photography and scriptures. Those are the kind of things and the kind of setup he had of what he was doing for his portraiture. A true artist. And though Van Der Zee had his own particular style of postmortem portraiture that departed from the standard in many ways, it was imbued with all the symbology of its roots and meaning. The religious iconography, the church and funeral home settings, the emotion and drama in the poetry, the veneration of ancestors, the delicate treatment of loved ones' bodies, the belief in an afterlife, they all harken back to well-worn Black rituals of mourning, perspectives on death, reckoning with grief, and community care. Van Der Zee was already 91 at the time of this interview. But if it weren't for Billups' efforts in putting the project together, we would have never got the interview at all, let alone a book documenting Van Der Zee's funerary photography. Considering how prolific he was and how long he worked, his death portraiture was but a footnote in many people's survey of his body of work. Toni Morrison, though, knew what was up. The Harlem Book of the Dead inspired her novels Jazz and Beloved. She says in the foreword to The Harlem Book of the Dead, The narrative quality, the intimacy, The humanity of his photographs are stunning, and the proof, if any is needed, is in this collection of photographs devoted exclusively to the dead, about which one can only say, how living are his portraits of the dead. I really liked her forward. Mm. I was like, you ate Tell me why. It was just so good. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but I did write down part of what she said. So she was talking, Mm. she started off the forward talking about how, like, People are like, back in the day, that was real portraits, which I thought was so funny because I feel like we would say that about that period of time. But, like, Uh everybody says, like, back in the day it was better no matter when the day was. So she's, like, talking about that sentiment, like, things were better back then. So she says, quote, Part of the enthusiasm is not critical evaluation but simple nostalgia, a love affair with the past made more loving because the beloved is no longer with us and able to assert itself. And I just felt that was so true because, like, when people talk about things that are gone, whether they're, like, ideas or people, they're kind of, like, frozen things. The the person or the thing can't talk back. It can't refute what you're saying about them, really. And it made me think about just, like, pictures of the dead generally. Like, you can do all this manipulation and make them into an angel and have them, you know, surrounded by flowers and put a newspaper in their hand or try to fix their face so they're smiling. And you you can make them what you want them to be. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Markel's parents and family members, like, putting him in the club and, like, having his last <laughs> hoorahs. Like, mm-hmm. you get to kind of manipulate your loved one for the last time and then have, like, documentation of how you wanted them to be presented. So that's what her forward made me think of. So I feel like she was, you know, working on multiple levels just about photography in general, but specifically the subject of this photography. Mm -hmm. And it's often not only just frozen in time, but frozen in positive time. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, so often people are like, don't disrespect the name of the dead. Like, we only want to 
talk about the good things about them. So right. on top of the nostalgia, there's this like positivity regurgitation that happens mm-hmm. all over whatever their legacy was, which is obviously very complex for a lot of people. That show. When we get back from the break, defending death rituals in the social media era. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. And recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rock the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, do people still take postpartum photographs? Of course. Professional photographers, yes, but also plenty of people who have a smartphone and can get a shot of their deceased loved one. Back in the day, the reach was limited to how many people could see your photo album or could get a physical print of the photo. But now, people are posting images and videos of the dead on social media, namely Facebook, for hundreds, thousands, potentially millions to see. Just Google this topic and you'll see how controversial it is. People posting think pieces, demanding others stop sharing pictures of the dead on social media. People asking folks on Quora if it's okay to post them. And a lot of people are not okay with seeing a picture of a deceased friend, family member, or even stranger when they open up their social media app. 
Yeah, I've seen this happen before, like people getting really upset when someone posts an open casket of somebody. (laughs) People who don't like it seem to consider it offensive and a violation of privacy, which I can see. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's fair. But some people take comfort in having and sharing photos of deceased loved ones. It's how they want to grieve. But that desire to mourn in the way that feels right to them bumps up against others' judgment, notions of appropriateness, morality, et cetera, et cetera. And it can be hard to navigate managing ethics, feelings, opinions, and grief when the internet is involved. We're in a time when photos and videos of Black people dying are spread endlessly and analyzed to death. Definitely. And to be honest, I did think the open casket photos were kind of strange in the past, but I've had to check my own bias for sure because it's really not a new practice. It's just set in a different context. These images of the dead can still be portraits that tell stories of the living of our ancestors, even if the framing is a little off or the lighting is bad. I appreciate being able to see it as the preserving of a mourning practice that feels celebratory and hopeful. Like, we don't want to release the loved one's memory just because they transitioned. We want to keep it alive. Also, I'm thinking about how Black folks are so good at bringing humor and levity into dark circumstances. Do you remember that shockwave of news that went around many years ago about all the corpses that were being dressed up and posed like they were alive thanks to extreme embalming? No. (laughs) I've never heard of this in my life. (laughs) Girl, yes. It was a whole thing. Um, It was a moment, you know, it was a moment that didn't last too long as many things in the news cycle don't. But it was people dressing their deceased loved ones up, putting them in different scenes, basically, like doing whole set design, being able to prop them up in different ways. They would work with a funeral home, I guess, to be able to embalm them and place them in the way that felt right to them. I wonder if they were like, we are on the vanguard of a new way of displaying the dead. You know, I don't know. But now that I'm thinking about it, I'm wondering, like, if back in the day when people were staging their death portraits, they could only pose the bodies in certain ways because they were dead. So their bodies didn't move the same. So they had to be sitting up in certain ways, or sometimes they could stage them as lying down, as we talked about in some of Andrew work that he did. That was an old, known way of staging death mm-hmm. portraits. So I'm wondering now if back then people would have seen this and be like, wow, I wish we had this kind of embalming and this kind of technology because they could have staged the portraits differently. They could have had a little bit more pizzazz and razzle-dazzle in their portraits back then versus the more standard poses they had to have. Also, I'm thinking if you do someone in like a a pose that's, like, real extra, then how do you get them in the casket after? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, Maybe there's no casket at all because that's how they were staged for the funerals. So that was the memorial service. So people would come to see the body in that way. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know if they were put into caskets afterwards that people saw. I'm sure it wouldn't be hard for the people who are handling the body to, like, put it in whatever casket they need to put it in for burial or for cremation. Mm-hmm. because they know how to work with bodies. And don't nobody need to see it after that point. Ciao. Yeah. <laughs> it is a lot. You know, I'm not saying it's not a lot, but I don't know about you, but I associated this phenomenon with Black people. And I don't actually know if more Black folks did it than any other race, but I can say that many Black folks did partake in the trend, I guess. A woman named Miriam Marie Birkbank was embalmed and posed sitting up wearing shades and grasping the stem of a wine glass. Okay, now that you say that, I feel like I have seen that picture. Did she have, like, long hair? Uh-huh. I think she did have long hair. 
Yeah, I feel like she had on jeans or something. I I don't remember seeing the bottom of her because she was sitting at a table. In my mind, she's sitting with a wine glass and she has her leg propped up. That's what I'm seeing. Maybe. She also had other alcohol. Around her? Around her. And there was an ashtray with, like, a pack of cigarettes next to it because she loved to party. Okay, I feel like I've seen this now that you you describe the scene. You might have. You might try to block it out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And I wouldn't be mad at that. And after 18-year-old Renard Matthews was shot and killed, his family had him propped up in a chair playing Xbox, sitting next to some Doritos and soda. I mean, it's so serious, but it's so unserious. A properly dramatic send-off that feels like an extension of the playfulness, joy, and spectacle that Black folks bring to all our morning rituals. Those airbrush memorial t-shirts come to mind. (laughs) (laughs) Classic. But I know we're joking right now, but there is a more somber and serious side to death portraiture. I think that can really come to mind because, you know, we see so many death portraits that we don't choose to see on a very regular basis because when people are shot in the United States and killed um, in these state-sanctioned killings, then images of dead people can float around on the internet and we are non-consensually exposed to them in so many ways and consensually in so many ways and we watch them over and over and over again. But there is an instance that we all know, or a lot of us know here in the United States, where there was a death portrait that was shared with everyone and that was a consensual choice. And that was Emmett Till's photograph of when he was in his casket. I'm also thinking about how impactful it was for his mother, Mamie Till Bradley, to share photos of his body in his casket. She said, let the world see what I've seen. She wanted folks to face reality, to be as lit up as she was by the gruesome image of her son's body. She was in mourning, but she asked jet photographer David Jackson to take photos of the funeral. She chose to share it in publications because she knew that photo can transmute grief into memorial, empathy, and ultimately a movement. Emmett Till, his death portraiture is definitely like a different vibe for sure, but it still is storytelling. Mm -hmm. And it really did launch the civil rights movement. And it's interesting how death portraiture plays into it. And like you said, there's so many images of Black people dying in a way that is not of our choosing. The portraits itself, like obviously the way Emmett Till died was not of his choosing, but even the portraits of Black people dying, I'm thinking like of... Mike Brown and how they left him in the street like that. And, you know, people took pictures and then posted that. And it's like, you know, no one in his family chose for it to be that way, to be shown that way. But Emmett Till's mom, Mamie, did choose that. And, like, all these other people are, like, choosing how they're, like, shown in death. There's a dignity to it. Whether you, like, want to see the picture or not, I think that the choice of it makes it, like, different. I agree. Yeah, the agency that Mamie Till Bradley had in it makes a really big difference. And that made her a storyteller, too, because those were creative decisions that she made. But I think it was really impactful for her to do that and to understand, like, so intrinsically, seemingly, what death portraiture could do. Because as far as I know, nobody told her to do that. So it's like she already had this sense that she didn't have to derive from anywhere outside of herself that death portraiture meant something, like the art form meant something, because people knew about his death already. So they already had knowledge in writing and newspapers, and they already had knowledge from just hearsay and what people are saying to each other, news spreading that way. But she knew that the image captured in that way was going to have a different kind of impact. So it was an astute observation for her to say, 
no, let's do this. And it was also like a critical decision for the people who were at JET to publish the photos as well and to say, I'm going to do what she wants us to do. So so it was a lot of coordination, you know, and structure around it that made it even more of a concerted storytelling effort on Mm. all of their parts. Yeah. And JET, they knew it would sell those. (laughs) That too. They knew it would sell. It was like a business decision. But not saying that business decisions can't coincide with movement decisions, because in that case it did. So really, why police the ways that other folks choose to honor the dead? Like Markel Moreau's family, one thing that so many of the people who ordered extreme embalming said is that it's what their deceased loved one would have wanted. So then the elaborate staging, the theatricality, becomes a continuation of that person's story, their characteristics, their personality, the things they love to do. They're all on display. And Katie, I have to say that even though in the past I was really a little weirded out by people sharing the death portraits online, thinking about James Vanderzee's work and learning more about death portraiture and the history of it, I've kind of shifted my feelings on it. Like, I know this is like me rewriting the narrative in a way for myself and, you know, doing a little bit of revisionist history in my own history, but I'm not mad at it. I'm not. I'm mad at it. Okay. I'm not mad at it. Okay. I'm mad at it being on the internet and me seeing it Mm -hmm. without my consent. Mm -hmm. But I think, like how I said, I would be like yelling at my grandma like, I don't want to take the picture. I mean, I don't want to take the picture either. But like, I do think it is important to have. But just like how everything is just like so accessible now, I truly do not need to see an open casket photo. I think ever. That's fair. Everybody's comfort level is different. And I think that's a difficult thing about it. I think that I maybe because, you know, I was already into like maybe a little bit more than the average person into death planning and death care and have think about it a lot for myself, talk about wills with family. You know, I think about the ways that I would want to be buried and what I want to happen when I die. I think I may be a person who confronts it a little bit more than the average person in the United States. I mean, I don't have the stats on that, but I'm quite comfortable with it. And like recently when I've had to plan a funeral myself, like was able to handle it because I think of all of that work that I had already done. So uh, I guess there was a part of me that had to question why the whys around it for me. Like, why was I so sensitive to this thing that we all have to deal with? Mm -hmm. I must have to deal with it for myself. And I do know that there's been a shifting of that culture around death in the United States over time where we've been more afraid to deal with it that I don't think is a wholly positive thing the way that we create distance from it because, you know, we live to die, essentially, because we know it's coming at the end of everything. So for me, it was just like, oh, I had to consider why was I against it? And it wasn't a thing of consent for me because for me, I know when I log on the internet, I'm about to get some stuff I don't want to see. I thought it was from a different place for me. Mm -hmm. So I think that's part of why my feelings have shifted on it. But that doesn't mean that I've lost the nuance that like that feeling can be different for everyone. And I don't necessarily prescribe that it's the right thing to do to share death portraiture on, or I don't even know if I want to call it portraiture because that sounds really official, but, you know, open casket images on the internet because that's an element that didn't exist in the 1800s or the early 1900s that we have to reckon with now. It's just... I appreciate now having a larger lay of the land and thinking about they did this before Mm -hmm. and they were used to death. 
and we still should be, death isn't the same, not the same magnitudes in the same ways, but we talk about it every day. And um, it's still a big part of Black media, Black death is. Yeah, I think it was a personal reckoning. Well, I'm glad that mm-hmm. you got that from doing this research in this episode. Mm-hmm. It's the growth for me. <laughs> Girl. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now. Now it is time for Roll Credits, the segment where we give credit to a person, place, thing, idea that we encountered during the week. Eves, you want to kick it off? Sure. And I'll just say something inspired by the episode. I will say Camille Billups. Because, as I mentioned in the episode, the Harlem Book of the Dead wouldn't have been possible without her. She's the one who organized it. She was like, hey, I think it would be a good idea for you to put all of your death portraiture in one book. You know, he had all of this, these other photographs that we've seen. And she was like, and I think, you know, you should work with Owen Dotson and y'all can get together and y'all can put poetry along with the photos. And this needs to be shared with everyone. And it just makes me think about all the projects that wouldn't have happened if people didn't just say, I have this feeling and it feels right. Let me just see if we can do it. And it's also inspirational for me to know that like the long scroll of parchment paper of ideas that I have. And I'm like, "Uh, isn't it a good idea or not? (laughs) That like it could be. So uh, yeah, I want to give credit to Camille Billups today, her work. Yeah, there's so many things that just wouldn't exist if one person was like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it, you know, or like, I'm going to get the people together so we can do it. Mm -hmm. I would like to give credit to printed out pictures. Also kind of related to today's episode, but my nephew gave me printed out pictures of himself for Valentine's (laughs) Day. And he was posing and he was so cute. And I'm just like, remember when we used to give each other pictures? Mm -hmm. Like, I have like so many pictures of you that you like printed out and like wrote notes on the back of. Me? Yeah. (laughs) Like school pictures or just like pictures we'd take around, (laughs) you know. And like, we don't do that anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, there's so many, like we have so many pictures but, like, they're not going to exist because the technology keeps changing and the files get corrupted and you try to print them out later and it's all blurry because it's on your iPhone, too. So I love a printed photograph. And I would like to give credit to that today. I love that. And with that, we will see y'all next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye-bye. <laughs> on Theme is a production of iHeartRadio and Fairweather Friends Media. This episode was written by Eves Jeffco and Katie Mitchell. It was edited and produced by Tari Harrison. Follow us on Instagram at OnThemeShow. You can also send us an email at hello at OnTheme.show. Head to OnTheme.show to check out the show notes for episodes. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., 
we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 